The Peabody and Emmy Award-winning 30 for 30 documentary film series presents The Tuck Rule, a documentary that examines one of the most controversial plays in sports history. See the legendary Charles Woodson and Tom Brady discuss, for the first time, the call that changed it all. Watch live February 6th at 8 p.m. Eastern on ESPN. Also available next day on ESPN+. Three times a week, The Right Time with Bomani Jones podcast brings you the latest from technology, music, and the very best analysis of the games. Plus, there's a robust community of friends, including Dominique Foxworth for Foxworth Fridays. That's The Right Time with Bomani Jones on Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays. Listen wherever you get your podcasts and on ESPN's YouTube channel. Welcome to That's What She Said with Sarah Spain, a podcast about, well, whatever the hell I want. Actors and musicians, athletes, comedians, neuroscientists, wine experts. If I find somebody interesting, I'm bringing them to you. We'll talk about how they became who they are, how they found success, battled failures, and how they ended up here talking to me. My name is Kendall Coyne Schofield, and my dilemma is the stress and anxiety around getting to Beijing healthy and safely. Um, it's such a big moment that we've worked our whole life for and to think it, it may not happen if you test positive at a certain point before the departure is, is so frightening, not only for our team, but for all athletes, especially um, our fellow Team USA athletes. So just praying that everyone stays healthy and stay safe and everyone gets over to China that deserves to be there. Amen, Kendall. I am so hoping that athletes aren't prevented from competing. I'm so hoping that everyone just stays safe and healthy. And I wish I had a solution for your dilemma. Um, but other than a full hazmat suit everywhere, even on the ice, which would really slow you down, I don't have one. I will say, though, um, how much I just feel for Olympians of the last couple of years. You know, you spend your whole life working towards something and you don't get the full experience of your friends and family there of this um, incredible bonding moment to have with other great athletes of the, you know, the raucous Olympic Village sexapades. I mean, that's just for the single folks, not you, Kendall, but that's a part of the experience, too. So it just feels unfair, uh, especially after reading your book and, and really, truly understanding the lifetime of sacrifice that led to this moment. Um, it's tough. It's tough. And the stress of trying to stay COVID free and safe must be overwhelming. That being said, you know, our attitude and our response to what life sends our way informs so much of our happiness and the values of our of our experiences and the satisfaction of our lives. So just remember gratitude that there are games, gratitude that science has helped make it possible to compete. Gratitude um, should always be the focus still, even despite the challenges. So go kick some ass safely and COVID freely. That's what she said. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another awesome episode of That's What She Said with Sarah Spain. And it's with one of my favorite people. She is responsible for two of the most chills-inducing sporting events I have ever seen. Uh, truly. Uh, she's so fantastic. Also, I want you to stick around after the interview. Two more stories of folks who made a big life change that you can learn from. And an update on the Do Crew. I have found my co-conspirators and I will unveil them. Uh, but first, this week's guest is the incredibly badass Kendall Coyne Schofield, newly named captain of the women's Olympic hockey team, a member of the 2018 gold medal winning Olympic hockey team, winner of 21 medals in international competition, breakout star of the 2019 NHL All-Star Game, yes, NHL, after crushing the fastest skate competition, co-owner of the Chicago Red Stars NWSL team, and new 
book author. We get into that fantastic new book, As Fast as Her, Dream Big, Break Barriers, Achieve Success. Uh, We talk about the lifetime of hard work that got her to the highest levels of her sport, how she's become a powerful voice for female athletes, a major player in the hockey world. Uh, She, in fact, became the first female player development coach in Blackhawks history when she was hired in 2020. We talk about the challenges she faced just trying to play hockey as a kid, having pennies thrown at her and her team in a boys tournament, fighting to make the Olympics and more. She's she's just put in the work and I'm so excited to watch her battle with the rest of the Olympians. Got to keep an eye out for her as the U.S. hockey team starts playing on February 3rd. So listen to this, become a massive fan and then cheer for her. Enjoy the interview. That's what she said. I'm so excited to welcome Kendall Coyne Schofield to the podcast. Uh, she is a fellow Red Stars owner with me, so I've had the chance to get to know her a little bit better um, via that and via radio interviews over the years. But I've just read her book, and now I really feel like I know Kendall. We have a lot in common in some ways, and in other ways, I was just blown away by the dedication, the time, the the toughness that has gone into being one of the greats. I was also reminded during this book, Kendall, that you are responsible for two of my favorite sports moments of all time, which is sort of unlikely because I really like hockey, but like hockey's never been my, my main, but I was so obsessed with that Canada U S Olympic game. I stayed up till all hours of the night. I was pumped beforehand because you guys were coming off that, that boycott. There was so much on the line. And like, I still remember watching that game as like one of the most joyful sports experiences I've ever had. Um, it was just, it was just so cathartic and the finish and the the shootout goals and the oops, I did it again. And like, all of it was just like, I was reading about it and thinking, man, that was one of my favorite sporting events ever. And then Um, at the, at the speed competition at the NHL all-star game was another time where I was just like, I was like jumping around in my room when you crushed it because it meant so much. And I knew how much it meant like in the moment. Anyway, we'll get to all that. I'm going to stop, um, pumping your tires and we're going to talk about the book and everything else. So let's start there. Why did you want to write this book now? Well, I always had, I have a lot of goals and I have a lot of dreams and writing a book was one of them. And the reason being was because as a kid growing up, whether it was in elementary school, middle school, high school, and you were doing a book project, I always was looking for books with women in hockey. I was always looking for more representation on the bookshelves because I really didn't see the representation in the ranks. I didn't really see many girls or women playing hockey as a kid. So when it came time to being able to pick a book project and and pick that book, I was looking for one that maybe had that representation. And I remember seeing two and doing a lot of book projects on two. And that was Manel Riem's book and Angela Ruggiero's book, two of, of the pioneers this game has seen, two of the best players to ever play the game. And we needed more. And so as I started to get older, I, I still felt like there was such a need for more. And when I feel like there's a need for something, there's a need for change. I want to do everything I can in my power to be a part of that change. And, and while I know this is just one book, I, I hope it can act as a source of inspiration for, for not just hockey players, but for a lot of people. And so that was really how the, the dream and the goal started was, was just wanting more representation on the shelves. I would absolutely recommend this book, not just to young hockey players or or even young people, because I really think this is such a, a, a well-written 
exploration of the amount of time and dedication and work that goes into being one of the best. And I think we've seen a lot of that in, in the stories told about male athletes. And of course, we hear about it when the Olympics come around. There are these nice, beautiful vignette stories that are told in two to five minutes about an athlete and how much they, they put behind their sport. But really, uh, a year by year rundown of, you know, missing 50 days of school in high school or all of the injuries and surgeries. Um, it just, it's a reminder when you get to the highest levels and the equity isn't there and the resources aren't there that you've spent all the same amount of time, blood, sweat, tears, passion, money, and you don't get the same payoff as, as the men do. And I, I, I really recommend people to read it for that. And then for, for young athletes, I think if I had read this as a kid, it would have made me work even harder because my parents weren't super into sports. I don't think they really, it wasn't like they ever held me back. I don't think they really got it though. And I think if a young athlete were to read this, they would really see like, oh, she was doing workouts in her basement, like lunges and squats and burpees and things that most of us didn't have as part of our repertoire until much later in life. Um, what was the hardest part about writing it? Well, I, and I just want to react off of that really quickly too, regarding my parents in a lot of the stories that you read, then they never made me play this sport. They never made me do workouts in my basement. If anything, yeah. they were telling me to stop and slow down and do <laughs> something else and, and, and not be so obsessed with hockey. And I think that's the one thing that has allowed me to continue as through a lot of, of the challenges that I experienced that you've, you've briefly highlighted in the book was, you know, I, I had their utmost love and support because it's what I loved. It's the passion that I had and what I wanted to do. Um, but they never, I was waking them up in the morning to say, <laughs> Hey, we got to go to hockey. Let's go. Like, get right. Uh, and that is true. Cause you were like in the computer lab, pre cell phone, looking up opportunities to play and compete in tournaments. So, I mean, I guess maybe it was my fault. I wasn't uh, motivated enough, but yeah, it wasn't really your parents. It was you going at every opportunity to seek out these things, um, which is in incredible. And, and, I, but, but you did say before we got started that your parents were a big part of you remembering all of this stuff and the details of all of it when you were writing, right? Yes, they were. And now I know why they're so tired all these years later. And <laughs> while we're all out of the house, they're still recovering from 25 years of hockey and road trips and, uh, you know, the financial struggles of just trying to to make ends meet by while also supporting our our desires, our goals, our ambitions and finding ways to make it work. But uh, we had a lot of conversations. It's hilarious to talk about uh, the early days, especially when I was super young, where I don't remember much and and to hear their memories, my dad's side, my mom's side. <laughs> and, then, um, and then as I got older, and I started to remember my side. Um, so that was actually one part of the book that I really did enjoy was getting to to talk about that, to talk about these experiences and moments with them. But to go back to your question of um, <clears throat> what was what was the hardest part, right? That was your yeah. question. What was the hardest part? I think it, and it's still the hardest part right now is, you know, as I talked about in the book, you know, I can be a perfectionist and it, it can hurt you. And I think writing this book, there's, there's so many ways to, to put things in writing. And I was always contemplating, can it be this way? Can it be that way? God bless my co-author Estelle. Uh, she had to listen to me and <laughs> I was like, well, how does this sound? How does this sound? And how does, this is how I want it to come off. Does it come off this way? And then of course, um, you know, feeling like you may be forgetting somebody or forgetting um, an experience or, you know, again, it can, you know, I had so many experiences, but I really tried to put the ones that had the most impact on me and help me get to where I am today and put those in the book. So I think it's just the constant cycling of yeah. thinking uh, while writing. 
Well, you'll learn as all of us writers do that like it's nice to get to put in so much time and effort to make it the way you want. And then as soon as it hits publish, you're going to be like, oh, but I wanted to do this or I would change this line. And you just have to be at peace with that. Um, this is what the truth was and the story was when you published it. And there's always room for for more stories later and, and updates on, you know, you need to add an addendum after you win another gold. All of that stuff, of course, <laughs> is going to be part of it. Um, so let's go back to, to you were a kid. And I, I love the relationship you have with your brother. And I feel like probably a lot of your success would not have come if he hadn't been accepting of you as his hockey sort of sparring partner, playing shinny hockey, you know, uh, having, you know, going to the rink together. Um, the fact that you were, you know, losing teeth playing with him at home and like just as tough as he was obviously allowed him to kind of be more welcoming. But there's plenty of stories where the older brother does not want the younger sister hanging around. So um, it feels like that was a huge part of you just getting on the ice in the first place. Uh, it was. And to be completely honest, that's how I got into the sport. And um, you know, my parents signed him up. He was rambunctious and signed him up for all different sports to burn some energy. And I got, you know, dragged to the rink to watch him play. And I said, I want, well, I want to do that too. Um, you know, and, and as the story goes, those that, you know, me wanting to do that too started in figure skates because mm. well over 25 years ago at the formerly known Orland Park Ice Arena, the girls who were in the rink were watching their brothers play like I was doing or they were figure skating. So my parents got me figure skates. And um, after a week in figure skates, I just, I recognized those were different than my brothers. I want to do what he's doing. I want to be on that ice sheet, not this ice sheet. Um, and after a week I got hockey skates and haven't looked back since, but yeah, I would say growing up, it was, I was always trying to, to be as good as him. And it didn't, it took me a while to realize he was three years older than me. And that may play a role in his development and my development and maybe why I can't keep up, but I just, mm -hmm. I was never satisfied with not being as good as him, not being as fast as him, not being as strong as him, not being able to shoot a puck as, as hard as he can. Um, and so that just always kept me going. And, and I think he loved the competition, um, to be yeah. quite honest, as much as he may say differently, I think he, he secretly loved, um, always having someone to play street hockey with roller hockey with pull teeth out, hit me with <laughs> the face with a stick on accident. Yep. You know? <laughs> yep. Yeah. We have that in common too. My sister accidentally hit me in the head with a golf club when we were playing golf in our backyard together, almost exactly the same as you getting hit with the stick, uh, by, by your brother. So, uh, we, we've got that in common. Uh, I, you know, you meant him with this golf club too. That didn't make it in the book, oh, okay. but I accidentally hit him on a backswing with a golf club as well. So, you know, we, I think we you got, got even trade off. You got <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. You got even, um, you know, you mentioned that your parents did try to slow you down, and there's definitely parts later on in the book. But early on, your dad was doing parachute speed training and things like that. So I will, I would have to say that you know they they certainly facilitated the passion that you already had for sure, right? Yes, yes, and it's funny because it sounds so dysfunctional that he no, had I don't think it does. That's the thing. It's like, I just, I just had this Lindsay Vaughn on the podcast and her dad, they like wrote out a spreadsheet with the points she would need to accrue each year. If she wanted to make the Olympics by this year. And I'm sure other people are like, that's crazy. And said, I'm like, why didn't I have that? I could have been a great, you know, like of course blaming it on them. Cause then I don't have to take responsibility for my own failures. But um, I think it's awesome. If the kid is really into it, then to, to foster that healthy, you know, in a healthy way. Yes. Well, Sarah, I must say you are pretty great. So thank you. Cut yourself some slack here. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, it, it sounds dysfunctional. And it's, what's funny is 
my dad didn't grow up in hockey. He didn't know hockey at this time. Women's hockey wasn't even in the Olympic games. Like there was no pipeline. There was no vision. There were no girls playing hockey. He just saw a a little girl who loved going to the rink, who loved to be going fast, running fast, bouncing off walls, just always in motion. And so uh, when it, when he bought the parachute and again, you know, Kevin was running in it. I'm like, well, I want to run in it too. (laughs) Um, And so, you know, my dad was, is, is very, um, he's very particular. Like he likes things to be like the way we run. He's like, you can run, but I want you to run the right way. Cause it's only mm-hmm. going to help you. So he would be yeah. very methodical on how the way we, we ran and he's a baseball guy. Like he, he loves his baseball. So I think if he had a vision for like his kids to grow up, it would be major league <laughs> baseball, Chicago bandits, softball. Yeah. Uh, you know, that would be like the dream to see us go on in, in that sport, but he never pressured us to go that way or this way. It was more just, what we love to do. And if I said, I'm not doing that, he'd be like, okay, well, that's fine too. (laughs) Yeah. 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 Um, well, you guys both got into hockey and for a while there, you sort of could, could play alongside your brother, at least in similar leagues, um, on boys teams. Um, you eventually got the opportunity to play in this big tournament in Quebec city. It was the first time that there was a girls team playing all girls against all the boys teams. You were super excited. And then at the tournament, there were people in the crowd throwing pennies at you and screaming that you didn't belong. And this was what, like nine-year-old, 10-year-old? Yeah, 10. 10-year-old. 10-year-old girls that people are throwing things at. And you guys did really well. And the next year, they banned you. (laughs) Like, it was like a one-off deal. Like, you made it, you played, they didn't like that you were so good. And then they banned girls. Like, what a message to get at 10 years old. Yeah. And I, and it, it's another one of those moments in the book where you don't understand the why necessarily in that moment. Uh, but then as I got older, I really started to understand the why. And I was like, that why needs to change. Um, at first I'm, you know, I'm looking around like, why are these pennies on the ice? And you're, as a kid, you're trying to dig them out. Like they're not coming out. What do we do? Like, <laughs> you know, and, and, and I talked already about one of those pioneers being Menel Riam, uh, 20 years prior to us, entering the, an all girls team into the tournament, uh, she played and she was the first girl to ever play in the tournament and they had to change the rules to allow her to play. And so when we went to the tournament and she was our coach, there was so, there were cameras everywhere, a lot of attention on us and a lot of people didn't want us. And it was, I didn't get it. I was like, we, we love this game too. We belong in this game too. Um, you know, we, we can play. Why, why can't we play? Um, and so Again, I didn't, I did, I didn't realize it at first. Maybe why those pennies were being thrown on the ice. Uh, but then a couple months later, when I was an underager, so I was eligible to return the next year as a true uh, peewee major, and we were told we weren't allowed to go. Then I got why they were throwing the pennies on the ice. Then I got why Mano was trying to shield us from like the negativity as eleven-year-olds that we didn't deserve. And so, um, you. You didn't. It's so. When I think back on my career, I, I recognize like the inequities, the inequalities, the 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 moments that you know happened to me simply because of my gender, and, and I start to realize how long they've actually been happening. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. 
Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. There was also the Kendall coin rule in Michigan, and you got back at Michigan a number of times throughout your career. But uh, can you tell that story quickly? And then I ended up marrying a guy from Michigan. Yeah, 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 yeah. They got the ultimate burn. The University of Michigan, I should say. Yeah. So again, growing up, there weren't many opportunities to play on all girls teams. And I, so I grew up playing all boys hockey um, and the girls game was starting to develop and it was slowly developing. And so I wanted to continue to play boys hockey, but because I'm, I'm a little undersized, it doesn't, it's not an excuse. It's just who I am. Uh, I had to stop playing games with the boys because it was checking and I was getting injured. And so I, I had, to, I wanted to practice with them. Well, that was like the one thing I said to my parents, I'm like, I just want to practice with them because the pace was so high. It was so competitive and I, I loved every second of it. So when it came time to finding a girls team to play for, uh, we reached out to Manel, who had who was my coach on the peewee tournament team. And she said, you can play with my team in Michigan. And so I did a part-time girls team, part-time boys team. So I'd practice with the boys in Chicago and I would travel up from Michigan for games. Um, and we were the bad news bears. We, we had excellent coaches in her and Tom Anastas. And, uh, we were, we were an average team and we ended up winning the state championship in Michigan, <laughs> which then allowed us to go to the national championship, which is a big, big deal. Michigan is one of the, has one of the largest numbers of girls playing hockey in the, in their state. So it's a big deal. And the next year I was, I planned on doing the same thing over again, practicing with the boys in Chicago and with Mano again in, in Michigan. And they made a rule saying that you have to live within a certain distance of the Michigan border. Uh, and when we confirmed that I did live within that distance, they then changed the rules to say it has to be as the crow flies, which I was th- short by three miles. Mm-hmm. And then I was unable to play. And I was, I was scrambling for an option to keep playing girls hockey at that point. Right. You understand rules like that when it comes to things like big time college men's basketball or high school where there's some more like high school or AAU where it's, you know, trying to get around the education system to get a player to play at a school in in an area he doesn't live in or, you know, things like that. But when it's a 10 or 11 or 12 year old girls hockey and there are no other opportunities, it feels like it's a punishment for the sake of being bitter or, or jealous or not wanting to lose instead of what's best for the sport or the athletes, which is what's so frustrating. Again, to be this young and to have so few opportunities and to have people continue to stand in your way. Um, you end up, uh, as you're getting older, the landscape is changing a little bit. There's still a lot of room for growth, but there was the first um, under 18 sort of national tournament for girls that you got to be a part of and compete in back up in um, in Quebec again, right? Uh, Calgary, Alberta. Calgary. Okay. Yep. And and so um that happens and you're a part of the very first one even though you're 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 underage again for it. Um are, are were those moments um at the time at that age did it feel like you you knew things were changing or was it just what's next in front of me and now this opportunity is here so I'm just going to take it. Um 
or did you recognize sort of historically that it was th this important moment? I think um, when, when I went to the Peewee tournament, I recognized it was special because we were the first all girls team. And I looked around the room and all the girls in the room played boys hockey. And so this was the first time all of us had played girls hockey or had played on a girls team, have not been in a storage closet because we're <laughs> a girl. We were actually in the locker room together and talking with each other and joking around because we were all girls. Like a lot of us didn't have those experiences. And so like, I think in that moment at that young age of 11, you, I, that's what I felt then. And then fast forward to the first ever under 18 women's world championship when I uh, put on my first team USA jersey and played in that world. I I didn't have a, an appreciation for who may have fought for that, who created that, how that came about. I more so saw it as the opportunity right in front of me because you're you're 15 years old and you get to play for Team USA and and now as I'm older and I look back it's it's my job to ensure that these these opportunities continue to develop to develop we continue continue to build the pipeline uh, to create more opportunities for whether it's the U18 level and and younger uh, because the pipeline for for girls and women in hockey is, is not very strong uh, and it needs to get better and and I think you know, right in that moment, that's how I was thinking. But as I, again, started to progress in my career, I was like, I am so thankful I had that opportunity. Uh, because the, you know, if I was three years older, I wouldn't have had that opportunity. I was too old and I just missed it. So I think of some of my best, like some of my teammates and best players ever play this game, Monique and Jocelyn Lamaru, Hillary Knight, they were too old. The first yeah. eligible birth year was 90. I was a 92, they're 89s. So I think like, wait, that's not right. Why didn't they have the opportunity to play in this? Right. And I, I happen to align with the timeline, but it just shows how we have to continue to keep pushing for opportunities because you never know how that's going to change not only someone's life, but the game itself. Yeah. And, and I think you maybe learned the importance of it, or at least where it sat in the history of hockey, because at the end of that tournament, um, the stick that you used went to the Hockey Hall of Fame, but you had a bit of a conundrum about whether to give it up, right? Oh my gosh. It was such a conundrum. I was so stressed out. I didn't have a cell phone. I couldn't get a hold of my parents. Hockey sticks are expensive. And my, I had already broken that stick and my mom had worked so hard to get a replacement wood blade to put at the bottom of it before the tournament. She went all over the city of Chicago finding one. She did. And, and then I was just going to give my stick away to this guy. And I was like, <laughs> not just any guy, a guy that hockey fans recognize as the keeper of the cup. Yes. And, but I was like, I, I have to ask my parents, like, I can't just give you my stick. These are expensive. Um, and I couldn't get a hold of them, needless to say. And so I would just, I just went for it. And I was like, I'll pay the price later. I'll work more summer jobs. I'll figure it out. Um, and then, but yes, so that is how my old beat up hockey stick wound up in the Hockey Hall of Fame because I ended up scoring the game winning goal um, of that first ever gold medal championship. Yeah. And your parents were cool with it. They were like, uh, I think we're cool with your stick being in the Hockey Hall of Fame, even though now we got to buy you a new one. Yes, they were. They were overjoyed. They were very proud. <laughs> I did like how throughout the book, you did keep reminding people of the cost of all of this, because it is necessary to remember the sacrifices of your family, not just time wise, but also to remind people how much money goes into 
being at those opportunities and those tournaments and giving yourself a chance to compete at the highest level. Cause I think that's um, part of the frustration too, of the lack of resources for, for women and girls is that everything comes out of pocket and all these, you know, expenses. And then the payoff is just not nearly the same as what um, boys and men get in res- in response to the time and energy and, and money that they put in. So I think reminding people that your family worked really hard to give you this opportunity is really important, including something like, you know, having that concern about, about the stick. Um, and I think, I, I think we highlighted in the book, but like my mom was a cleaning lady. She made flower arrangements. She was a lunch lady. And like while raising four kids and my dad's working full time and uh, we always had the old beat up cars that barely worked. And <laughs> every hockey season, we would sell raffle tickets to help offset the costs of, of our hockey fees. I don't think that was in the book, but the, you know, just the, the, the sacrifices that they were willing to go and to make. Um, and all, and I think oftentimes they sacrifice some of their own personal happiness for our happiness so that they could provide these opportunities and just working odd jobs and, you know, making ends meet. I mean, I'm so appreciative of, of all of that. And it, it, you know, I think that's one goal of mine is to make hockey more accessible, make hockey more inclusive and make it more affordable because that's, that's how we make it the best game on earth. And we still have a lot of work to do. I know you did that with your deal with Adidas and the Kendall Coin Schofield camps that you run. You were really proud that Adidas gave a bunch of gear so that those girls could have that stuff and not have to pay out of pocket like you did growing up, which is so fantastic. That's how you pay it forward. You know, that's that's all part of it. Um, so you had multiple hernia surgeries. This part, this is part of the the book where you talk about all the many injuries you got, all the times you overdid it or had accidents because you were running around like a loon all the time. This is the story for so many kids and their parents of athletes of like, oh, here we go again, back to the emergency room, back to whatever. But this one I couldn't believe. Um, you've gotten your third surgery now and you never really listen when they tell you you need to slow down that's why you keep getting the hernias and now you're supposed to stay in bed and what happens oh so after the surgery um they told my mom to go get the car and so i was i was left solo which is never a good idea uh and i sat up on the bed in in the recovery room and i felt a little loopy you know under anesthesia and i whatever I, i feel loopy and i i passed out i fell off the bed I smoked my head on the cabinet to the left with the sink and split my head open, broke my nose and my stomach was okay, but I needed to get some stitches in my head. I needed to get nose surgery later, few, you know, a few years later actually. Um, but yeah, I, I, my mom went to go with the car and she quickly came back to a disaster um, of, of a situation. You were but supposed I- to wait to get help and you didn't want to wait for help. You were all ready to take care of yourself. Hey, Sarah, I will say I'm, I'm still paying for that nose surgery now that we get so many nasal swabs. I think my nose. Oh, my is- God. I <laughs> bet. Ouch. Ouch. Like, oh, my God. I bet. I broke my nose in field hockey and I didn't fix it because I was a singer at the time and they're worried about messing with the resonators for singing. And so it's still crooked and it kills us when it's cold. I get bloody noses when I get swabs up and I cry. It's like, damn it. These sports things. I mean, I'm like you, though. I got um. Um, when I got my Achilles surgery, I, um, was told to call them if I needed to go to the bathroom and I just out of principle, I was like, I'm not using a bedpan. I can take care of myself. So I was left alone again, bad idea. And I decided to like drag myself to the bathroom using my arms. Cause I only had an epidural. So I was only numb from the waist down. And I figured I'd be able to just like drag myself to the toilet and then get up there and then like 
it would just come out. But unfortunately, I waited so long believing I could make it and not have to go that I just peed my pants. So I was just crawling on the floor, like wetting my pants. Um, but I, then I didn't want to tell anyone. So then I just got picked up by my friend a couple hours later and went, you know, in her car to get my medicine at the store and went home. And I like was just in my pita and pants. So maybe we should ask for help sometimes. <laughs> Might be the lesson out of this. It's just to just ask for help occasionally. Um, have some patience. We'll get right back to the interview. But first, what is your favorite word? Passion. Passion. So I had no idea, but this is a fascinating one because our modern usage has almost no ties to the original meaning because the word comes from the Latin root word of patior, which means to suffer and was first used in English around 1175 AD to mean the sufferings of Christ between the night of the Last Supper and his death. Um, so it started out meaning to suffer. And then it was extended to the suffering of martyrs and suffering and pain in general by early 13th century. In Middle English, it became the state of being affected or acted upon by something external or an ailment, disease, affliction, an emotion, a desire, an inclination, a feeling, a desire to sin considered as an affliction. So literally an outside force that is too strong for you to be able to control or resist. Uh, by the 1580s, the sense of a sexual love arrives in relation to passion. And then a strong liking and enthusiasm of predilection is from the 1630s. By 1732, an object of great admiration or desire. And now we most often use it to describe either a strong feeling of excitement or enthusiasm for something or doing something um, or a strong sexual or romantic feeling for someone. Um, so your passion for hockey comes from incredibly specific and very outdated roots uh, all the way back to 1175. Speaking of great words. You gonna learn today. The word of the week is cacafuego. Because you know sometimes you want to insult someone, but you don't want to swear or be too crass. Maybe like an internet troll or someone that's annoying you in a public space where it feels like outright cursing is inappropriate. This is the word for that moment. Cacafuego means a swaggering braggart or boaster. Okay, it already sounds cool, right? But here's the key. The incredible etymology of this word derives from Spanish. Cacafuego literally means person who shits fire. Fire, shit. Fuego, caca. Cacafuego. This person is such a swaggering boaster and braggart that they shit fire. So in a sentence... There was an extra special joy in witnessing that obnoxious cacafuego losing the opening round of the tournament after so much insufferable pregame trash talking. Cacafuego. Now let's get back to the interview. All right, let's talk about the Boston College Scholarship, because this was wild, too, um, as someone who went through all the recruiting and, and the conversations you have. To, to be recruited by someone from like the beginning of the recruiting period all the way up until you commit and to tell all the other schools that you were considering that you were out and you, you respectfully called them all, all of the coaches to tell them, you know, one, you know, face to face, one to one over the phone that you were that you were going elsewhere. And then you call Boston College all excited. Boston University. Boston University. And and what happens? Uh, they told me they don't have the scholarship they offered. But to back it up, um, they I called the coach to, to commit and he didn't answer. And I didn't think really anything of it. And little did I know he called my mom to to tell her the news that he chicken. Was, 
<laughs> yes, that he, he didn't want to tell me. And my mom came upstairs. I was napping on my sister's bed as I did a lot because she somehow got the queen bunk bed on the bottom and I got shafted with the, the, <laughs> the twin on the top. But honestly, it was I definitely made the decision because she's four years younger than me and I probably love jumping on the top. Right. Bunk, so that's, yeah. you know, that's that how that out. out. Yep. But so I was napping on her bed. My mom wakes me up and, and she has the coach on the line and, and I was kind of confused in the moment. And then, um, you know, the news broke, you know, he doesn't, he doesn't have the full scholarship that he, that he offered you, that he's been offering you, you know, whether it's via uh, phone, email, letters in the mail, uh, home visits, you know, the whole, you know, throughout the whole process. And, and to be quite honest, Sarah, my, my worth is, is a full scholarship player. Um, wow. I was one of the, the, the highly highest touted recruit of my age, if not the highest. And, and, and I was not accepting anything less than a full scholarship other than, you know, if I went to an Ivy league school and they don't give scholarships and mm-hmm. there was a scholarship school I was considering, it was full or nothing. I mean, it was simple yeah. as that. And so to hear that devastating news that, that, you know, he doesn't have what he promised, you, there's a sense of betrayal there. And I think the other thing too, I, I thought of was like, I, I deserve that. And I know how hard I've worked, how, how hard my parents have worked. I don't, I deserve this full scholarship. I'm not accepting anything less. And, and so it was, that was a really hard moment. And, and I think this is a moment that actually is going to shock a lot of people yeah. uh, reading the book because I haven't shared this moment very widely at all. Um, you know, cause it, a, it's exhausting to talk about, um, be it's a longer story, uh, you know, and, and see it, it doesn't define me. It doesn't, doesn't define them. It, what defines that moment is how, how I responded to it, the resiliency I showed through it. Um, and, and, and how everything happens for a reason. I can't imagine my life, um, at, without Northeastern university. And I'm so thankful that moment happened now that I look back and it was another one of those moments that was so hard. I didn't know why it was happening. I was, I was angry. I was upset. I was tired. And I didn't get, I was like, why is this happening to me? What did I do to deserve this? I don't get it. But then as I look back, I'm like, I get it. You know, yeah. I, I'm, I, I get why maybe this happened. And, and I'm so thankful. I had the experience I had at Northeastern university and gosh, darn, I loved every single game. I got to play against Boston university. <laughs> yeah. You got, you got back against Boston university. You got back against Michigan. Like you, you, you have a tally, which is good. You know, you're keeping tabs on all the people that you need to get back at. Um, so you went to boarding school for a year because um, by the time that, that scholarship was gone and you tried to, you know, get back into the process and start all over again, it just wasn't going to end up the way you had hoped. So reset, go somewhere where you can continue hockey. And you had also missed lots of days of school um, because of your commitment to hockey. So even though you had already graduated high school, you go up your education level at a boarding school, you play hockey there and it offers you the opportunity to then set up that, that um, Northeastern um, scholarship and everything you did for that school, which really took it from unranked to a team that made, made the tourney, which is really incredible. Um, Especially women's hockey. It's, it's small. It's eight teams um, that, that make it. So that's such a great legacy for you. You left with all these records. It, It all worked out in your favor. And it reminded me throughout of the opportunities that you take. There's a lot of messages in this book for kids um, that are useful for adults too, but there are moments that feel very directed at up and coming young people in, in terms of pursuing their dreams, finding their passion, working hard. 
There's also some really great lessons in standing up for yourself and making sure that you get what you deserve. One of them is that scholarship. And another one is the conversation you have with the national team coaches. This is something you've been working towards your whole life to be a part of the U.S. national team. Um, you, in fact, went through a, a, the very first camp you were invited to where you didn't get the nod and you thought, okay, I'm just going to work even harder to get back there. So you get there. There's still a chance you might get cut from the final team. Um, and instead of doing what they ask, you prioritize yourself. So um, talk about your eyes, which is something that comes up also late in the book. You never mention it until that moment um, and and how you had to stand up to them. Well, and this, and I just like to clarify too, this is the Olympic team. This was yeah. the, the national team. This was the, oh, I guess it's not this, it's not exactly the same in an Olympic year. The national team is the Olympic team. Basically. Yes. Yeah. 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 So good point. It was, but it was an Olympic year. And so the team I was, I was vying for was an Olympic roster spot, not just a, not a world championship spot is equally as exciting and important, but this was the Olympic year. I had been cut from the 2010 Olympics and this was uh, now the 2014 Olympic process. I had taken the year off of college because I had made the residency team. We started with 25 players. We had to get down to 21 um, um, on January 1st of 2014 um, and in that was a that was a hard year. Um, I realized how hard it was to make an Olympic team, uh, mentally, physically, every single day. This is it's hard. Um, and I now I, I had I already had a ton of respect for everyone who's been to the Olympics. They were my heroes. They were my idols. Uh, but now I, I really understood why it's so hard. And I a conversation uh, after a, a devastating loss at the Four Nations Cup in Lake Placid led to a four a.m after uh, arriving back on the bus um, in Massachusetts with a goalie coach about tracking pucks and how a few of us players are going to have to spend 20 hours a week um, doing an eye program to help us track pucks because he felt that I couldn't track pucks and I couldn't hit a backdoor pass. And so it was really the first time I was in, in the national program where I felt like this, I need to stand up for myself. I only have two eyes and those are the two eyes I get for the rest of my life. And and up until that point, I ne- I've always had a lazy eye, um, but it was never a topic of conversation. It never impacted me. I get it checked every year. My eye doctor said, "Nope, you're you're good. You're healthy. You're you're fine. It just drifts when you get tired. So that's a lot, but um, <laughs> you're fine." And so I said to him, with all due respect, I I understand the optometrist is coming in to 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 work on our eyes, but you know I've been seeking care of an ophthalmologist my whole life. I've had this lazy eye my whole life. And and I hear you that maybe that is impeding my, my ability to, to track a puck in my peripherals, you know, but I, I'd like to get that checked out, but my doctor, you know, before I start messing with my eyes and doing this program. And uh, it wasn't really well received uh, to be quite honest. I don't think, you know, they were used to play, players challenging, um, you know, what they wanted us to do and how they, how we do it. it. You know, you, you know, oftentimes at the highest level, you're, do what you're told. And so I was young. I was 21. I was one of the youngest players on the team. And I I went back to Chicago. I asked my eye doctor, I said, you know, can I not track pucks? Is he right? You know, if he's right, like, awesome. I'm glad we figured this out. I want to be the best I can be for this team. Like, I want to know, I want to win a gold medal. Um, and the eye doc said, no, you're good to go. I, I literally went from midway, uh, to the doctor doctor back to Midway airport, back to Boston on the same day. I brought the report back to the staff and, you know, there was no, no, no problem tracking pucks. And, and my doctor said, I don't want you doing something that I, 
you know, I don't know what you're doing with your eyes. You know, right. you're under great care. You're in great, great spot. And um, so I went back with the report, said, I'm not going to do this eye program. I, I don't think it's best, you know, for my eyes and I'm in a good spot. And, and, and I, it led to a really hard conversation with the coaching staff. Uh, one in which I thought I was going to get cut for. I, I was fully uh, anticipating a plane ticket to be handed to me after that conversation in 2014. And um, obviously it didn't, uh, but it was, you know, I, I didn't do the eye program and it yeah. wasn't a matter of me not wanting to work hard. I think if you read the book, you know, that's, that's a key to my success is my, is my work ethic. And I'm willing to do whatever it takes to, to be the best for this team, for this country. And, you know, to then get it shoved back in my face that I'm not willing to do that because I, care about my eyes, um, what was hard. And, but I was willing to take, I was willing to put that fight up. I was willing to, I, I knew in my gut it was right. I, and I needed to stand up for myself. Yeah. It also seems strange and almost performative to have people do an eye program for something like that. Cause it, I doubt it was a problem with their eyes. If you know what I mean, did it feel like it was really linked to people's eyesight or was it about, any number of other factors that can contribute to whether or not you're tracking pucks well. Well, that was m one of my prime um, arguments was I will sit on the ice and hit backdoor passes for 20 hours a week. Right. Um, you know, I, tell me that's something I need to get better at because I, I will. I love constructive feedback. That's the only way to get better. Don't tell me everything I'm good at. Tell me everything I'm bad at. Right. right. So, um, if that was, I, I will do, I will rep it out, rep it out, rep it out. Um, you know, on the ice, you know, off the ice, you know, in a puck shooting room, whatever it is, I'll, I'll do it. But when we're talking about messing with my eyes, I, I'm not doing it. Yeah, it was, it was a strange anecdote altogether. But thankfully, you stuck up for yourself and it worked and they kept you around. And it was, you know, a huge, a huge part of um, your story and, and your continued success is your ability to stand up for yourself. You know, I'm curious, you, you, you mentioned occasionally in the book, your size, but every time you do, you have the caveat of like, that's not an excuse. Uh, you know, that's just part of life. Um, but I, I am curious. So my mom is a lawyer. Um, my parents are lawyers together. My dad is a man who's six foot four. My mom is a woman who's five, five. And she often will get asked in court when the lawyer's showing up and she's like, that's me. Or, uh, you know, they'll, they'll be waiting on someone to arrive and then she'll have to say that, you know, that's, um, and she, especially, you know, when she started her career years ago would have all these instances of being disrespected, not just because she was a woman, but also because she was not a very fearsome presence at five, five and very petite. And, um, I wonder for you, you're five, two, you have a baby face you have a high voice, you seem like the nicest person ever, right? You come across as so sweet, but then everybody who knows you knows that you're going to beat the shit out of anyone that's in the way of what you want. And how frustrating must it be that the impression that people get of you, or maybe they treat you um, up until a certain point when you make very clear who you are, um, is, is all about that. Because I bet there's been a lot of disrespect just simply out of you not being Brittany Griner, right? Like as much work, as much sweat, as much, as much accomplished, you know, you, you're multi-time Olympian, um, who just probably doesn't get the same respect as a female athlete. Who's, you know, six, six. You're spot on. And I've had a lot of, uh, experiences like your mom. Um, you know, one of them, I'm so thankful for my partner in Chipotle and I have a, a burrito cart. I love that. That's a commercial right there. I'm so thankful for my partner in Chipotle. <laughs> well, so I did a, because of my partner with Chipotle, 
I get a burrito card and you get free Chipotle every day if you want it. And so I go into Chipotle and when you scan the card, it comes up celebrity card. And I'm with my husband. (laughs) I'm with Michael, as you know, Michael, we're all owners with the Red Stars together. Uh, Michael's six, seven plays professional football and we're standing next to each other. I scan the card and they look up at him and they go, what do you do? And he goes, it's not me, it's her. <laughs> oh, look at me, it's not my card, it's her card. Oh, that's great. You know, it's, 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 you know in, in my, when I was broadcasting, I was um, taking a break from the booth in between periods and, and, and someone asked if I was the intern and I said, no, I'm the analyst. Um, you know, and so mm-hmm. they're, they're, those are just two quick examples. Um, but I, I think for me growing up, you know, yes, my, I'm not, not the biggest person, but, um, and, and that's why, you know, one of my sayings for the hockey camp, for my hockey camp is you don't need to be big to dream big. And, mm-hmm. um, I live by it. I, I try and portray it to, to the kids that I work with. Um, you know, it, it's never been an excuse for me. It's always been an excuse for others. And I, always told myself to put in the work. So that can't be an excuse. Um, you know, I, I can be the strongest, I can be the smallest and the strongest, mm-hmm. I can be the smallest and the fastest. Um, yeah. so there's, there's, it's just not an excuse cause it's not something that I can control. If I could control it, you know, then I can work to change it, but I can't control it. So I'm not going to spend time exhaust being exhausted over the fact that I'm, I'm small. This is right. who I am. This is what you're getting. Um, you know, and I, and I think, um, early on in my career, my, my play did, did a lot of my speaking and I was, I was a little bit more introverted and shy. And, and, um, and then as I got older, I realized how powerful, you know, my play along with my voice can be. And, um, I've been working to improve that and, and see the change that, that I can have. And, and there's definitely mistakes I've made along the way. And, I've, you know, learned how to be better from those mistakes and how to use my voice more effectively, how to be more educated through whether it's, you know, mistakes or just learning. And, um, you know, it's in the book, but you need to know history to make history. And, um, you know, I think it's, there's been a learning process that has come along with, with advocating, with having a voice, with, with earning that voice. And I think that's something women don't get credit enough for is, you know, for example, Sarah, you have an incredible voice, but you've worked your ass off for that voice. Um, and, and no one gave you that voice. You've worked for that voice. You've worked for your platform. Um, and you, you fight for change for everybody. And I think some people think it just showed up one day in the mail. Um, but no, we've worked hard and I would argue harder, um, than most to be in the position that we're in today. And I think you've kind of touched on it. Um, my book sort of highlights some of those, uh, tougher times that have really helped me get to where I am here. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Let's talk about the boycott because that was a huge uh, tie into what you're just talking about. Um, and this, the way it went down, ended up being sort of unbelievable and perfect at the same time. The idea that you would boycott a world championships on American soil and just not show up for it. 
made it so much bigger of a story, I think, than if it were set to take place in some far off country. Um, the idea that the U.S. team that we look so forward to seeing in the Olympics and in the World Championships um, would just not play kind of didn't seem likely. And then the storyline of U.S. hockey calling every player in America, you know, beer league, high school, college, any woman that got cut and hadn't made the team that maybe really wanted it. And the work I remember talking to, I think you and Hillary Knight and some others on my radio show during that, the work that they put in calling all of those people to say, hey, you're going to get a phone call and you cannot say yes to playing because this is not about us. And right now this is about the future of women's hockey and women's sports. We have to put our foot down and get what we deserve. So you end up offering this boycott of a world championship on American soil. Um, none of the players that U.S. hockey calls to try to be scabs are willing to play. And they put themselves in this terrible position. You fly out for a 12-hour meeting. I had to read that three times. I was like, holy shit, you were sitting in a in a meeting room for 12 straight hours trying to hash this out. And the next morning, they're still trying to call scabs. Um, so they still hadn't been totally sold. Tell me about the moment that you find out after this back and forth, the 12 hour meeting, the scabs that follow up with your calls and, and reject the offers. Um, and there's so little time before this is going to happen. Tell me about the feeling when you learn that U.S. hockey is going to accept a number of your demands and you'll be able to go play. It still makes me emotional. <laughs> um, it was, there's, I mean, the moment we found out, you know, we were all in our respective hometowns um, and I think the moment though, that, you know, there was two moments. The first was when we all got to the Detroit airport and we started seeing each other. It was, it was a hug that I can't explain with a, so much emotion, so much weight yet. So weightless of just, we did it. We stuck together. We, we fought the fight that needed, that needed to happen. And it was just such like a relieving, um, a type of feeling. And uh, that was, that was the first um, time that was and we were emotional. I mean, we saw each other and like, I'm emotional now we were emotional. Um, and, you know, the second time was uh, when Hillary Knight scored that game winning goal in overtime, they could have brought out, I don't even care medals that were made of, of plastic I don't even like the, it was just poetic that we, that we won on home soil. We, we proved our worth once again, capped it off in front of a sold out crowd mm. in Plymouth, Michigan, the home of the national team development program. And, you know, it, I, I couldn't even, I didn't even, I didn't even feel like Canada was our opponent in that game. It felt yeah. like our opponent was, were the, were those that were, were above that we, we just fought for nine to 12 months uh, of, of, you know, just what we deserved. And so it was just, uh, it, I, I said in the book, it was by far my favorite uh, world championship. Yeah. And I don't the pressure. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah. Of the pressure of after all this, if we lay an egg or even just come in second, it doesn't back up everything we just fought for, even if it shouldn't be about that result. It should be about bigger picture, the resources and money and time and effort and everything that are going toward boys and, and men and not women and girls, even though this it's exactly like the U.S. women's soccer fight, right? The stated purpose of the federation is to grow the game and to support the U.S. teams. And instead, it's about way more m money and resources going to men and, and boys. Um, but the pressure that you must have felt to get it right that day. 
Yeah, for sure. A lot of pressure, but I would say, um, that was such another pivotal moment. Like I've, you know, a lot of these book, these moments in the book that we're talking about have been pivotal. And that's why I, I felt so passionately about them being in there. But one of the big reasons this was so pivotal was me being able to to watch and to to learn from some of the greatest leaders that this mm-hmm. game has ever seen in Megan Duggan, Jocelyn and Monique Lamoureux, Hillary Knight, and that veteran group that took me under, under their wing. I had been young when I joined the program. And so I was still younger than them, but I had a lot of experience. And I just graduated college as this, com- as the conversations as a, of a boycott and a negotiation right. started happening. And, you know, you're a little, you're as a, when you graduate college, you're not really a part of the conversation because you're a student athlete and you can't be. So you try to learn when you go, okay, what's going on? You try to learn and whether you're eating lunch with them. And, but then I graduated and I was, I was, then I was fully in, I'm a full post-grad getting no money. You know, I had a job with the Blackhawks and I'm like, this is bullshit. And that's when I realized these players have been doing this for some of them, five years, six years, this is unbelievable. You know, and yeah. I was only six months into my postgraduate life and I'm like, this is unacceptable. Um, and so to be able to, for, I, I owe so much to them because they, they saw how passionate I was about learning from them too. And I think that's so important to me now as a, as a leader of this program yeah. is to, to educate the younger players because they're filling our skates, they're filling our shoes and they're, they're the future of the change that this program needs. So the education that I received and being a part of that negotiation you know, throughout the the process, like it was, it was, it was pivotal because it it also proved if you're willing to fight for what you deserve, sacrifice everything for it, you can accomplish anything. And and that's exactly what we did. The younger people can't rest on the progress that you all have made. They need to be educated enough about it. So they push for even more so that the sacrifices made by you all don't, don't end there. Um, Cause I remember, you know, talking about it back then, um, there were some very clear and obvious things like there's this, you know, USA hockey boys development, you know, fund that's, you know, millions of dollars and there's nothing on, on the girl's side, you know, there's all this funding for games to be played. There's all this promotion. Whereas, you know, you guys, the Olympic greats would be in a city and the, the promotion would be so bad. Most people wouldn't even know that there was a game that they could go to. The one that stood out to me that was less known was uh, those uniforms for the men's and women's Olympic teams in Sochi in 2014. None of the women were invited for the unveiling, even though they were unveiling uniforms for the women's team as well. And then the jerseys listed all of Team USA's gold medal winning teams, but only the men. So the stitching on even the women's jerseys had the gold medal winning Nagano team left off, which is just like the idea that no one would be in the room and even think how absurd and offensive that is and how non-representative that is um, and inclusive. That's the stuff that reminds you that the people in those rooms don't give a shit. And the people in those rooms are not living the struggle of trying to make things better. So it's easy for them to not even notice something as egregious and awful as that, which is why it's about the fight that you guys do, but also about those spaces replacing a lot of the people with other um, identities and and lived experiences, because they're the ones that they're going to say, wait a minute, why would the men's and women's teams have only the men's gold medal on the uniforms? And why wouldn't a woman be here to like, it did none of it made any sense, but none of the people in the room seemed to even notice or care. And that's the exact feeling we constantly had was we're an afterthought. Like we're an afterthought. And it was case example, case example. You know, all all these examples were were right in front of them on the table. Um, you know, and uh, you know, 
obviously the book highlights a lot of a lot of those examples. And uh, you know, we were done being an afterthought. We need we deserve to be top of mind, just as the men and boys are top of mind. How to, how to be better and how to grow and and, and provide in the sport. So do we. So do we. And, and we're done being an afterthought. We're done working two jobs and, and then taking off a week of work to participate in the world championship right. and finding ice, cutting deals with rink managers to, you know, get a good deal here, a good deal there and f- fending for ourselves and then calling ourselves world champions. Um, you know, my husband's a world champion. I can champion. I can tell you he didn't go through the same experience as I did to get there. Um, and you know how supportive he is and how much change he wants to be a part of the change yeah. as well. It, you know, you, you said it really, really well early on. It's just, I don't think people really understand, you know, what, what we go through to, to continue to play the sport. Right. And you guys are a perfect example because you live together. So you're mirrors to each other of the time and the work that you put into your sports, him being a Super Bowl winner, you being a gold medalist and to see the financial results that he gets as an NFL player, the respect, the resources, the effort, all of that. And then to, to put it up next to yours when you've spent your whole lives uh, pursuing similar goals is frustrating. I do love that you said that when um, he, after he won the Super Bowl, he spent the rest of that offseason hanging out with you in Boston when you were finishing up at Northeastern and he treated all the women's hockey games uh, with the tailgate mentality. As you know, that is, I think, my number one contribution as owner of the Red Stars has been uh, making sure that the tailgates are the top of the league. Um, and also just understanding that that kind of passion and excitement about the events is what brings people in and like gets them in. And then once they're there, they realize how great the event is. But so I think, yeah, Michael and I need to hang out together and put our collective tailgating abilities together. Um, I loved that. And I love like I've, the number of people I've shown the video of you squatting with Michael on your back is like endless because again, it's like you, he's six, seven, you're five, two, and you're doing squats while piggybacking him to say, listen, it uh, like, doesn't matter what size I am. I can be the strongest. This is what we do at home when we're hanging out is we squat each other and, and exercise and, and, and try to be the best. Um, but it's huge that he sees firsthand what you're fighting for, because I think it allows him to go out and be such a good advocate for it. Um, Speaking of advocate, that's what you guys did after the boycott. You won the world championship. You won the Olympic gold medal against Canada in one of the best and craziest games I've ever seen. Um, you you ended up doing great publicity because of that. You really took advantage of that moment. And that um, led to the next big moment. We're sort of running out of time, but we have to talk about the NHL All-Star Game and the, and the speed competition. I had no idea that Patrick Burke was behind this. I love Patrick. If you guys don't know Patrick, I got to know him through You Can play and my work with them, but he um, knew that you were incredibly fast, offered to slide you into the rehearsal for the fastest skater, which you were not set to compete in the night before, just for fun. You crushed the rehearsal. A player has to pull out because of injury and he fights for your insertion. He goes to the league. He goes to Gary Bettman. He goes to the NHLPA, which is how you end up being the first skater, which, by the way, was really unfair that you were first. So, by the way, first woman ever to compete in the NHL, you know, speed competition. But why don't you just send send her out there first um, without having known until like that day that you were going to compete and you crushed it. So this is another moment where everything could have gone horribly wrong. So take me into your mind. It's what, 13 seconds. So it's it's nothing. But if you fall or if you suck and you're way behind the speed of all the boys, people are going to say, Oh, she didn't belong. Exactly. And I think when, um, I think of some of the greatest allies in, in my life and in the sports, you know, men, women, it doesn't matter. Um, Patrick is one of those. And 
um, you know, I think all the faith and all the belief I needed was right there in that moment in him. You know, there was a reason he was advocating for me to, to be in that moment when Nathan McKinnon went down. He knew I could be successful. He watches hockey. He watches he watches the Olympics. He, you know, he talks about he goes, I know she can skate with them. I, I want I know it. Um, and that was all the confidence that, that I really needed. I, I mean, I knew I could skate with them too, but there was a reason he was advocating so hard for this to happen because he knew it would be successful. Um, and, and it was just now my job to go out there and execute it and do what I, what I know I can do and skate like I've been skating since I was three years old. And I kept telling myself, Hey, it's like riding a bike, take a deep breath. I tell kids this all the time, believe in yourself. And I just kept saying, believe in yourself. I took a deep breath. And I was trying to enjoy the moment. The crowd at the SAP Center erupted with USA chants. And, <laughs> uh, you know, it, in that moment, it was a moment I, I, I said this before, but I wish my teammates could be there because we work our asses off to have a sold out crowd, to market our games, to, to have a full building, see us do what we love to do, to showcase our product, our talent. And so often we, we show up and, and the building's half full um, or it, it's not marketed or it's not. And so just to be in that building, to, to hear it erupt, to have it sold out. It was just, it's like, gosh, I wish everyone was here. Um, but it was just, you know, I I was like, Hey, just, just, just do what you do, do your thing. Um, and, and, and when the horn and the whistle went off, I just, I just skated like I always skate. (laughs) Um, and I just did my thing. And, um, you know, the response and the reaction afterwards has, has been incredible. And I, and I, and it still has been, um, you know, we're going on three years here and, uh, we're still feeling, the impact that that moment had. And mm-hmm. I don't care if it was me skating it or somebody else skating it, but a, a lot of, a lot of credit is due to Patrick for advocating for that moment and being such an ally of women in hockey and, and, and inclusion and, and just trying to change this game for the better. And he knew that moment had the opportunity to do that. And it was 14.346 seconds of a mm-hmm. moment and it's had, it's had three years and, and more of impact. Yeah, I definitely cried then. I almost just cried again when you were talking about it because it is, it's just like that feeling of all of the work and then to have this full stadium of people chanting USA for you and what you said about wishing your team was there because it is true. It's like you've given people this incredible feeling of pride and patriotism that they enjoyed so much and you actually get to to benefit from, from hearing that and the way that that sort of, you know, it takes you over in that moment. But I also, you know, you mentioned in the book and it's so true. You were just doing what you've always done, which is like be really fast and really good at hockey. And the idea that you had a platform for that and that everybody watching was finally like, oh, wow, that's impressive is kind of like alternately really amazing and incredibly frustrating. The fact that that 14 seconds could be so much bigger than Olympic games that you've worked your whole life for or world championships that you've worked 11 different jobs to be able to afford to compete for. Um, and that that gets less attention than the 14 seconds where you're next to some dudes and you beat them. Um, and I, I think it's, a, it, you mentioned like the Billie Jean King, I think in the foreword of the book is like, sometimes you just have to accept that that's how it works, right? That like her, Battle of the Sexes got a ton of attention because she had to play a man for people to be like, oh, I guess she's good, right? Instead of all the championships. And so um, I, I think that probably sticks with you, the idea that if you're just given the platform, you you can do it. 
Exactly. And then that's exactly what women's hockey needs is it can't be visible only every four years at the Olympic games. We're working every day. Um, you know, that was a few hours of before and said, go skate. Okay. I'll go skate. Right. You imagine yeah. you everyone on the ice, how, how, how in awe people would be of the game. If, you know, we played a game on that platform with that audience. Um, and, and so we need to continue to work for that visibility, for that audience, for that infrastructure that allows the women's game to be showcased, you know, 82 games a year, like, like we see our NHL counterparts to be showcased in the regular season. And so it needs to, we need the consistency. We need the infrastructure. We need that dream that we can grow up and make a living playing this game. If we're good enough to do so. Yeah. All the boys in the world. Yeah. All the boys I grew up alongside, they had that dream and it didn't, I didn't realize it when I was young that my dream was not, it didn't exist or it was different. Um, but it's, I, I love the game the same way. Um, I, I've, I've played a lot longer than a lot of them, um, but I still don't have that opportunity. Yeah. And, and that's the focus of the Dream Gap Tour. Uh, that's the name of the tour that you guys, um, the women's hockey players, uh, ha- all came together to create these opportunities to play games around the country to audiences to try to promote them. And it's all about the dream gap, the gap between what you can dream of and what the, the counterparts on the boys' side can dream of. Um, I wanted to talk more about that. I wanted to talk about the Schofield Foundation. We're out of time. Before I let you go, you have to do the one thing that everybody does and nobody expects. Didn't expect a kind of Spanish Inquisition. Nobody expects the Spanish Inquisition. It's the Spanish Inquisition speed round. Number one, your current career is canceled. You can't play hockey or be an analyst or talk about hockey. Hockey doesn't exist. What job do you do? Doctor. Whoa, okay. That just uh, you know, just a just a doctor. No big whoop, medical school, all of that. Impressive. Oh my gosh, you're I crazy. love helping people, so I think I would enjoy um Wow, you're so impressive. Uh number two, what's the most scared you've ever been? Mm, most scared I've ever been. I get scared pretty easy. <laughs> so uh most scared I've ever been. Oh, one time my mom was at the store. And she told me she was going to be home in like five minutes. And then all of a sudden I heard like a banging like five seconds later. And I thought someone broke into our house. So I called the police and it was her. (laughs) Well done. Uh, Number three, you could be the best in the world at one thing for one day. What is it? Gymnastics. Oh, be so fun, right? Oh my gosh. Be so fun. Um, Number four, what current celebrity from music, politics, TV, or sports would you most like to be your best friend? Allison Felix. Oh my God. She's the best. Do you know her? No, I wish. Oh my gosh, you should you should just like call her up. You guys are both legends. I'm sure she'd hang out with you. She's, She's definitely a legend. So cool. Um, actually, my friend is friends with her brother. I'll just slip a message in and see if she wants to be best friends with you. Okay. Or just here uh, on women's hockey at the Olympics. Okay, okay, I'm on it. I'm on it. Um, number five, what's your biggest, most meaningless pet peeve? Probably cleaning cleaning the house before I go on a road trip so that when I come home, it's clean, but it can get really annoying. Cause it adds to like the packing. I like to like totally. back and be, make sure I'm organized before I depart. That's good. It's good that you do that. I don't, I come home and I'm like, Oh, who broke into my house? <laughs> <laughs> um, number six, what's the most embarrassed you've ever been? Um, I was going to guess when you puked in an ice bath, which is in the book, which I can't even imagine puking in an ice bath. It must've been, I've been in a lot of ice baths in my day. I've never been, I've never felt the urge to throw up. Yeah, that's a good one. That's that's definitely a good one. I like that one. We'll go with that. All right, good. Well, because you were also sharing it with someone, which is an important fact. You weren't just alone puking in an ice bath. 
the poor person in the garbage pail with you is unfortunately collateral damage. <laughs> uh, number seven, what's the thing about yourself you'd most like to improve? Uh, patience. Mm-hmm. That checks out. Number eight, any musician or band alive or dead can play your next party. Who is it? Bruno Mars. Oh, cool. That would be great. Uh, that would be awesome. Number nine, what would you consider your biggest failure? Biggest failure. Hmm. I think oh, one moment would be 2014 when we lost the gold medal. That was that was definitely difficult. Um, and, and I and I know there's more to come. I, I you know I think there's. I, I will definitely fail and fail and fail and and learn from that. Um, but athletically, I would say that probably that that hurt the most. That one was tough. That was a tough one. Uh, number 10, what three individual words would you most hope that people would use to describe you? Um, resilient, hard worker, and compassionate, maybe. It's a good one. I like that. Uh, final bonus, who should I have on this podcast? Who's someone from any industry or background or anything that you think I'd find interesting? Ooh, who should you have on the podcast? I mean, I've been trying to get Allison Felix for like three years. We just keep Allison going back Felix. and forth. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Felix for sure. All right, I'm on it. You've inspired me to follow back up again. I've been I've been like exchanging emails with her brother about it for so long. Who's he's like her manager? I'm gonna, I'm going to use you as the catalyst for making it happen. Yes. Okay. Uh, Kendall, this was so fun. You're just such a badass. I can't even believe what a badass you are. And I'm, we didn't even talk about this Olympics cause there's just like too much to get to, but I'm so excited. I can't wait to watch you guys and it's going to be, it's going to be badass. Get added to my list of favorite events. Hopefully with another win. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me sharing my story and, and the way you do and, and just being you. Oh, thanks Kendall. That's what she said. Oh Yeah. One more thing. So this is a place for rants, raves, things I've listened to, read, watched that I think you should check out. Sometimes just a great story you should hear, whatever's on my mind. And today on my mind, two amazing friends who have made a big life change. You'll remember from a couple episodes ago, I introduced you to three folks who faced something that sounded super scary and took the leap anyway. If any of you are looking to make a big life change and you want some inspiration, these folks are here to share their experience, what they feared, what they learned, how it's going. Um, and as we kind of continue with this theme in 2022 of taking on challenges, changing habits, trying new things, I think listening to people who have tried it is super helpful. So we got two more today. Let's start with Joe Johnson, founder and owner of Obvious Shirts, uh, which if you're a Chicagoan, you have seen on folks all over town, every Cubs broadcast. Um, Here's Joe. So tell us what you were doing before you made this big change. Yeah, before I got started with Obvious Shirts, I was working downtown Chicago at a company called Career Builder. I was selling software to healthcare systems and major hospitals uh, to better recruit, um, as we know how hard it is to find good healthcare workers. So that was my job, was working with hospitals to recruit nurses, RPNs, LPNs, all that, pretty much every type of job in healthcare. Were you happy or was, was there something that you always knew you wanted to go do something else and you just weren't sure what? Yeah, I was happy in the sense that I loved the people I worked with. I was not passionate about selling 
and software. So what was the moment that you knew you were going to try to make a leap to actually leave that job and start your own company? The moment was probably when Obvious Shirts as my side hobby was taking up just as much time as my day-to-day. I decided to go all in on Obvious Shirts. What was the toughest part? What were the biggest hiccups of like when you walked in and you told, you know, your job you were quitting and you you decided to do it full time? The toughest part was the uh, fear of the unknown, Um, leaving the security, leaving a very good paycheck, uh, leaving health insurance. I didn't, when I made the leap, it was kind of a if not now, then when moment. And looking back, I'm glad I made the leap, but I didn't fool, I was ignorant to all of the, uh, I guess, information you need to have to run a legitimate business in right. the county and all, like everything that you need to prep for and plan out. And that, I, I had some very, very tough days in 2017 when I, when I made that transition. So Joe started making one shirt for fun. It was a design based on Cubs pitcher Jake Arietta. It took off a little bit, and he added two or three more. They went viral, uh, but he was still just selling shirts through word of mouth as a side hustle. And then when he decided to leave his job, he realized he needed a lot more ideas of shirts, a lot more products that could result in sustained revenue. And he learned about inventory, printing lags, cost margin, shipping issues, and so much more. Looking back, I did not take all of that into consideration. I was kind of in the honeymoon phase of like, this is cool and this is exciting. When you look back at the reality of how it went to leave and create this business matches to the fears that you had on the day that you decided to take that leap. I underestimated how difficult it was. Um, I had a lot of really good help along the way, a lot of really good people in my corner, but it was, it was much scarier looking back, I think, knowing what I didn't know. Um, mm-hmm. Again, I was ignorant. I was ignorant, so I didn't know how scary it was at the moment, but looking back, like I, I feel very lucky because there were days where I don't, there were days and I told Grace many times, like, I don't know if I did, the, if I made the right move. I don't think I made the right move. And then, you know, something would change or I would wake up with a different attitude and motivation and say, well, I have to make this work. Joe's girlfriend, Grace, has been a super big help as he continues to build the business. And he combines his passion for sports, his ability to make friends with and do partnerships with big name athletes in Chicago and other markets, plus his willingness to help out great causes. And that has all propelled him to really great success. So looking back, um, do you believe that it was the right decision? Yeah, I'm I thoroughly am like kind of living out my dream and having the autonomy to come and go and do and be. The best part's the creative control, right? Like, I love creating. I love to make something out of nothing. So that freedom and that autonomy, I've never had that in a, in a profession before now. And that's, you know, that's really, really, that makes it working every day and through the rough parts and through the tough parts still enjoyable. You have got to have passion for it. If there is not, and you have to believe in yourself. Um, you have to you have to bet on yourself, and you have to really, really, thoroughly enjoy and have a passion for what you're doing. And if you have those two things, if you're confident in your ability, and you are passionate about something, like there's there's passionate, and then there's like truly passionate, and there is a difference. Like if you are all invested and passionate about something, um, you will you will make it. You'll find a way to make it. You just will, um, and you have to bet on yourself. 
So go check it out. Go support him. Obviousshirts.com. It's great stuff. And, you know, I, I think he's he's real inspirational, especially for creative sports types. Uh, finally, for the folks uh, that are out there that have seen these big career changes and think, no, 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 the job isn't the problem. Maybe it's the place. So what about uprooting your life entirely with a big move? So my friend Marty Murphy did just that in early 2021. Here's what he was up to before he decided to make that big change. I was living in Chicago and playing, playing the drums in a band that I manage and do booking for, um, and also working as a technical recruiter, doing technical recruiting. Was there one moment where you thought, okay, this ain't it for me. I'm not super happy. Was it gradual? Was there like a aha moment? How did you decide, like, I need to make a big change? Well, I think similar to many other people, COVID has everyone reflecting and Uh, So it was gradual for me. And then over time, I asked myself, when, when was I the happiest in my life? And that was when I was living in Costa Rica 18 years ago. So I decided to take the plunge and go back. The toughest part by far was leaving the life that I had established in Chicago over, over a decade and a half. And um, leaving friends, family, the band that I built, um, relationships, etc. So what are you doing now? So now I am, uh, I'm still playing music in Costa Rica. I'm still doing technical recruiting. And the only difference is uh, really where, where my feet are planted. Which is usually in the sand. Marty, of course, works, but he lives right by the ocean, takes his dog on hikes and to the beach daily, still able to work the same tech job in the same time zone even as he was in Chicago. So I want you to think back to the days that you were deciding to let your bosses know at your company that you wanted to move, um, you know, obviously much easier because you're not quitting. You're just telling them you'll be working from somewhere else. Uh, let your bandmates know that you are, in fact, leaving. Let your friends and family know you're moving to another country. Um, in those days leading up to, to needing to have those conversations and make it real, what was your biggest fear? That's a good question. I think my biggest fear was probably that that it might not work out so it's you know it's hard to to tell people something like that and then um you go through with it and it doesn't work out and also how people would react but um it it went well for me so i'm i'm pretty grateful for that when you say worrying that it's not going to go well do you mean financially you won't be able to support it do you mean happiness wise you won't be happier once you get there what was what would not well have looked like well, I would say both of those, um, you know, from a financial aspect, can I, can I make this work? Um, and more importantly, from a happiness level, is, is this really going to make me happier? Am I going to get there and realize, oh, you know, I, the grass wasn't greener on the other side kind of deal. Uh, and fortunately, it's, it's been about a year and, and I'm, I'm happy that I, I made the move. Marty can look back and remember being a little bit scared about the move, but knows that he made the right decision. They were definitely practical concerns, but they were amplified and blown out of proportion in my own mind. And they, they weren't as big of a deal, but quite frankly, I would have feared more. Um, I, I'd be more terrified if I wouldn't have gone through with it and always thought, oh, what if, what if? So I'm, that's what pushed me to, uh, to take the plunge, and I'm very grateful that it did. So I hope you find hearing these stories inspirational. I hope it gets you thinking. And as you're thinking about changes, big or small, uh, you know, keep thinking about those things you've put off, things to stop, like smoking 
where things to start, like a new hobby, an instrument, a language, maybe a wellness practice, uh, like the members of my do crew. And yes, I have settled on that as a name because honestly, it just offers up some real ripe content opportunities. I have the brain of like a 12-year-old boy. So, you know, for instance, I like the idea of us all doing it together. That's what she said. I feel like it feels best uh, to do it in groups. That's what she said. Uh, if I'm going to do it, I'd rather not do it by myself. That's what she said. You get the picture. So let's give you a first look at the Do Crew and their varying and interesting goals. We'll see how many of these folks last and meet their goal. Jared wants to build and submit a full crossword to a publication. Sarah wants to complete her first ever triathlon. Mark wants to row a sub three hour marathon on his rowing machine. Ross wants to make his own cookbook. Katie wants to finish a Duolingo course in Welsh. Lucas wants to publish a poem. Al wants to finish the draft of edit and submit his children's book to publishers. Supriya wants to create an organized workflow for her photography so she can pursue it as a side hustle or a full-time gig. Melissa, who wants to learn to play the ukulele with her 11-year-old daughter. Douglas says he's a functional workaholic. He needs to work on prioritizing self-care and his health. Craig also wants to get healthy so he can get back to bowling and roll a perfect game. Erica wants to finish her children's story and write at least two more short romance stories. And Christopher wants to create and post new music to his YouTube channel. So the Do Crew, like Voltron, will be far more powerful as one. Uh, I can't wait to get these folks together to urge each other on. I'm going to be sending out a little bit of homework to each of you. We'll get to check in every once in a while, see how everyone's keeping up with their goals and how they can motivate us. I am personally one month into my Do Crew adventure. More on what I've been up to coming very soon. Hell of a tease, Spain. Loved it. Uh, you can always tweet me, at Sarah Spain, if you've got guest suggestions, questions, or more. And you should always go to the iTunes or podcast app, subscribe to That's What She Said with Sarah Spain. Rate it five stars, please, and give me a review. Thanks, as always, for lasting about an hour with me. That's what she said. That's what she said.